friends! Welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with Bishop of Bad Ideas, Chris Prunty. Oh, I like that! And our continued special guest, Daniel Quinn. In addition to Daniel Quinn, today we have another interview with Seth Skorkowski, author of the Vidulcan series, as well as uh, the Black Raven series, and he just came out with a new book called Ashes of Onyx. And we have an interview with him that we're going to cut to fairly soon. Actually, we're just going to cut to it right now. Boop. Hi there. Uh, we are joined today by author and RPG veteran Seth Skorkowski. Uh, Seth, thank you very much for joining us here on World Build with us. Uh, oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, I mean, just, um, you, you got the, the basis covered. I'm, I'm a fantasy and horror author. Uh, actually, I just released my newest book earlier this week, so Ashes of Onyx is out. And then I do a YouTube channel. I primarily talk about just tabletop role-playing games in general, uh, scenario reviews or kind of uh, uh, what I call my philosophy series, which are kind of more comedic takes on some of the uh, stuff that new people are learning and a lot of veterans are all too familiar with. That's actually kind of how I got to know you and your channel was through the philosophy series. And, you know, I do love the comedic take on it. And I do love the fact that we have someone who is primarily like a Call of Cthulhu and like a pulp action adventure type fan, as opposed to just every other D&D. You know, not that I have anything wrong with D&D, but I mean, as a fan of Lovecraft, it's nice to see someone who loves Call of Cthulhu with the, the genuine admiration that you do. Well, it's, you know, and... Um... You know, I I will always love D anD D. You know, it was, it was my first love as well, and uh, basically, whenever I, I finally did kind of stick my head out and start trying out other games, Call of Cthulhu for me was one of those ones where I had heard about it, and once I actually finally sat down and read it, it was very much a kind of a where the hell has this been my whole life? Like this is <laughs> this is absolutely up my alley, and um, I've I'm absolutely in love with that system. Yeah, uh, just something between the sanity and and um, not just the sanity, but the types of stories. I think it's very atypical considering, you know, you're used to heroism and then you switch to something like Call of Cthulhu and like the tone and of everything basically changes. I think it's I think it's really fun, at least in that regard. Um, I was wondering, so what's your favorite aspect of Call of Cthulhu as it compares to other RPGs? Um, my favorite aspects of it. See, I, I love the fact that it is a, a skill-based system. Those are those are my jam, uh, where you, you're not playing a class uh, like you are in, uh, in D&D or other games, or you are a fighter or a cleric, and then as you gain experience points, you get more powerful and more hit points. Uh, with Call of Cthulhu, it's, it's, it's an occupation. You're just a, a guy, and um, you just you have a job, but all of your skills are just kind of based off of what you want to have and any of them can go up at any time. So it's much, much freer for us to come up with characters. And um, instead of you come up with a character concept and then you have to kind of figure out what class they fall into. And thus you just come up with a character and you build it and that's it. And so I love the freedom that it gives as well as the, it's always lethal. You know, a, a street punk with a knife is always, threatening to you because you don't suddenly have 800 hit points and there's no way that can hurt you. And Call of Cthulhu, that's, that's always a possibility. So I love that kind of realism to it. 
I, I and I think that that philosophy that you have there really shows up in your book, Dameron. Uh, I think that, you know, like the fact that, you know, you, we have these holy hunters and we have, you know, the, they, they're wielding these holy weapons and they're highly trained and all that. And yet some of them just get taken out really easily and really quickly by cultists with a machine gun or cultists with, a, I think you called it a varmint rifle and Dameron and, and whatnot. I, I, I think that I see a lot of bleed through. Do you want to talk about like kind of your process when it comes to Dameron at all? Well, Dameron was... Um, that was a product of a lot of separate ideas finally coming together. I basically had two different ideas for a story. And uh, I finally realized one day that they worked really well together. And and that's where that came out. But I, I don't like the trope where you've got the group of heroes and they all walk away or they always get that little, that hero wound, you know, that one on the shoulder that never really seems to bother them after they... You know, initially get hit. So I wanted it to have that feeling of a, of a good war movie where you might find a character that you like and then they they can die the way people do, sometimes just very quickly and you know, without really any any warning or anything like that. So I wanted to kind of emulate that that kind of war feeling to it. And that feeling definitely comes across pretty well. I mean, you you definitely have characters in there that you you don't expect to die, and then all of a sudden you turn around and they're literally face down in the mud with a bullet through them. And in you know you you have that as well when it comes to like the uh, the the Vidalcan, the holy weapons as well, which is also like oh wow, you just saw three of them just get smashed by a giant oni with a hammer, and it's a matter of oh yeah no shit's real now got it it's okay like carrying all that tension that you get from you know, like Call of Cthulhu into the you know narrative storytelling space you know that's yeah what's amazing about it. Daniel you want to go ahead and ask your your craft question because oh, yeah, I know yeah. you're waiting to ask it I just so this is my favorite <laughs> question especially because I feel like it's rare um, when you have writers who are also I mean it's not rare for us because we encounter a lot of writers who are also role players but for people who aren't like in the role playing space they don't have the experience of doing world building for an RPG and then world building for a story. So I always like to ask creators like you, like what aspects do you take from world building in RPGs that are different than what you might do when you're crafting a story? When it, when it comes to, to world building for, for Dameron, uh, since that was, that was one that takes place in, in our world, uh, I did want to pull in a tremendous amount of, of history. Uh, I prefer to pull in real aspects of history that are kind of strange or lesser known than, than have to make it up. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't mind making stuff up, but if, if I can work in real, uh, I definitely will. And uh, a lot of a lot of my stories pull from that. So most of the monsters that I used in in that book, as as well as the others, those are real folklore monsters. Very few of them did I come up with on my own. Uh, I might have put a new slant on them, but I figure, you know, why why reinvent the wheel? I'd I'd prefer it if somebody knows what some of these obscure ones are, they can nod and go, yeah, I know what that is. Or um, whenever they they visit somewhere in, in Florence or any other places they go, if that's a real place, that adds that little bit more credibility to the parts that I made up. It suddenly starts kind of blending the lines of like, they might think that, well, maybe, maybe he didn't make that part up. Maybe that part's real too. So it comes harder to tell um, where the real and the fantasy are if you do a lot of uh, research with that. Uh, I, I actually have done classes at conventions on, on world building at writing conventions, and I always tell them that 
you know, we have so much freedom when we're writing fiction to do anything we want, but to sell it, you have to know what's really there and, and blend that in that way. Somebody who knows more about something than you, you might be able to trick them into thinking that you, you know what you're talking about. I really couldn't agree more. One of the things that I draw, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big history nerd. And one of the things that I always draw inspiration from is real life history. I think that when you recognize that these things can happen and have happened, and when you go out and experience a lot of things in the world, it just adds such, such depth and realism, like you said, and, and it helps you sell not just the setting, but the, vi- you know, like the visceral feeling like, oh, this has happened. And to kind of get into the shoes a little bit more of, of, of you know, when you're when you're setting that stage, so to speak. Um, it's kind of like selling um, the realism um, that you would normally be able to do through theatrics and RPGs. But in the writing, you got to do it through some, some historical versatility. Uh, seeing how you just uh, finished another book, have you already bought another uh, Hellraiser puzzle box? Um, well, I, I, I know which one I want. Uh, (laughs) it's, it's the one where it kind of slides apart and then the star pattern, I think it's called. I, I haven't done that. And, uh, you know, basically right now with, uh, uh, I think we've got Brexit coming up in like a week from now. Oh, wow. Uh, and they're out of England. <laughs> I might just have to wait to watch to see, you know, what is, <laughs> what does the exchange rate do? And, um, you know, what, it, uh, what, that's, what is that's this going to for, for, for yeah. exports? So, uh, I've, I've kind of been slowly watching cause I know exactly which one I want. And my wife has had to admit that, yeah, I've, I've earned a new <laughs> box, but you know, <laughs> They're they're yeah. they're a weird guilty pleasure. I can't even convince her to watch those movies. But oh, what? Yeah. Well, some, most of them anyway. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> sp- speaking on. of that, uh, Hellraiser Five was actually good. Wow. <sighs> yeah, no, wow. don't don't. Uh, anyhow, uh, <laughs> there's horror movies that I love, and there's horror movies that I just kind of close uh, hold close to my heart. Like there's movies that I think are better than it. But growing up, it was the movie that got me into horror movies. The first half of it, yeah. Oh, awful. God. You mean the... Hey, hey, that's why I like slow build-up horror, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was more of a... Is Hellraiser also your favorite? Or is it just like the one that you cherish because it kind of brought you into horror? Um, my favorite, um, just to go with the first one that came to mind, would probably be John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, oh yes, man. yeah. Uh, that one for a reason. That one is just perfect. Um, it's just it's it absolute perfect. Yeah. Um, Hellraiser was one of the early horror movies that I saw when I was I was young and it was on VHS on a tiny little television, which it looks much better in that format. When you watch it now on super high definition, you can see the cardboard sets. And it oh. looks so, so bad <laughs> because you can tell it's a complete shoestring budget. Um, so it, it, it was, it's one of those few movies that like you should watch it on, on VHS on a crappy TV. Um, With scan lines and everything. I never oh, yeah. thought that yeah. might have like nostalgia takes you so far. But when I watch them, I'm like, wow, I never noticed these little <laughs> crap details. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, as you get I, older, No, I get it. It's a product of its time. And- it. Oh, but um. With Hellraiser, I was also I'm also just a huge Clive Barker fan, so I also uh, deeply love the novella that that came from. 
Um, mm. the, the sequel, the Scarlet Gospels, uh, not so much, but the Hellbound Heart, I absolutely loved as well as many of other Barker's other works. So I watched that and a lot of other uh, Barker movies when I was young, kind of at that impressionable age when I started liking horror. And yeah, I just, I just liked it. It was so different than anything else. Totally understandable. And and Chris actually mentioned that you just came up. I mean, the whole reason this got brought up is because you just finished your new book. And why don't you go ahead and tell us about your new book uh, for those of us who are uninitiated? Okay. Um, the, the new novel is Ashes of Onyx. It is, um, it is about a sorceress named Kate Rossdale who has lost her magic and has become uh, horribly addicted to a drug that gives her a temporary bit of magic. Eventually, she is hired by a man she doesn't trust to do a job, and the payment up front is returned to her ma- of her magic. And the, the quest is to travel the multiverse to reach Carcosa to get vengeance to the person who uh, killed all of her friends and robbed everything from her. That sounds really cool, actually. But, like, I already have a million questions that I don't want to ask <laughs> you. Oh, yeah, that- yeah, well, I mean, I have, yeah, this is, so you can tell that you're a storied or, or actually a veteran world builder because in your elevator pitch alone there, I have so many questions that I know you don't want to get into because you don't want to spoil the rest of the book. Well, but man, can, that is. I can oh, answer ahead. some. You can, you can, okay. you can ask me some. I can, I'm, I'm pretty good at skirting. <laughs> all right. Um, so, so first of all, uh, how does the how, how does the magic work? I mean, for, first and foremost, I mean, how do you lose your magic and how do you gain it back? Um, the the magic in the world, uh, much of it is very ceremony and gestures. There is a lot of uh, drawing circles. Um, so Kate's uh, most notable ability is she has the ability to uh, draw a circle on the ground with the glyphs that can reach another world, and then they travel through the uh, the abyss or through the ether to reach this other uh, world where it has you know different races and different physics and everything like that. Um, so there's uh, other magic that's done through hand gestures and whatnot. But how she lost her magic and how she gets it back is, you know, the the book will have to tell you that one. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was afraid of. Um. <laughs> I'm into like the revenge quest stories, so like, it seems like part of this is like redemption for her, but also like getting back at people who took things away from her. Yeah, there's a little bit of I spit on your grave yes. to it, which I kind of appreciate. <laughs> I um, I, I've been meaning to do a a video or a big blog article talking about uh, the difference between sword and sorcery and, and epic fantasy. And one of the, the key differences is sword and sorcery is very person personal based, uh, such as your motivations are revenge, love, greed, you know, those, those things that all of us have experienced. Well, epic fantasy is usually save the world, save the kingdom, uh, thing, you know, goals that are larger than yourself. And I have always been drawn to sword and sorcery motivations more because I, I can empathize with that. I know what it's like to be, angry or <laughs> feeling a little uh, greedy. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I, I prefer having those types of motivations. I mean, very understandable there. It's kind of like that divide in comics or sci-fi where there's, you know, golden age compared to new wave or even modern stuff, you know, where yeah, sword and sorcery compared to epic fantasy. I, I I'm in complete agreement there having something that you can really like 
gnaw into a character with and understand their motivation so much more is, is so much more interesting. There's like a general abstraction that happens, I think, between epic fantasy, like he's saying, and sword and sorcery. You get further away from character motivation. Yeah, yeah. like hard, high, hard science fiction and uh, space opera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a question. Um, speaking of like your own kind of origin story here, um, when you first came into setting up your channel and maybe even when you first started putting together your first novels, like what was the journey to get to that moment where you're ready to do? With books, I, I wrote for probably, God, I think Dameron came out about 10 years after I decided to seriously start writing. And um, I was really, uh, really bad at first. And I, I did actually write one novel and about 75% of its sequel. And I was never able to sell it. I have, I have stacks and stacks of rejections for it. And I did several short stories on the side. And that's where my Black Raven stuff came from. Those were uh, primarily short stories I wrote during those early days, just in between other chapters of the book when I was having writer's block. And finally, uh, kind of in a bout of frustration, I went to a convention that had a, this big writing workshop that was being headed by a gentleman named Lou Anders, who had just, he had just won the Hugo for best editor. I figured, you know, if anybody can tell me how to fix my book, it is definitely this guy. And so I spent, so. you know, three days, you know, locked in a room with, with Lou and about 19 other people. And the weekend ended with him basically saying like, you know, kid, your, your, your book is unsellable, but it taught you how to write. So why don't you just put this in a drawer and, and write a book that, that's sellable now that you know how to write. And the next week I started Dameron. So that was actually a, a very, a very good uh, experience, even though the, the end result of it was I had to put that, that really bad book away, just accept it was bad. Do you were planning on going back to it? Totally. Um, it, it that the, the first book, well, let's just say you shouldn't, you shouldn't base a novel too much off of a D&D game. Oh, there uh. <laughs> hey, I think that Dragonlance has something to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on. There's, there are uh, some exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose so. But then uh, the channel, the channel, there was no plan. I, uh, I had meant to do one for a while, and almost spontaneously, I started it one day. I didn't research anything when it came to cameras, so I just kind of set up a camera. I didn't know how to edit so I just talked and my, my first, basically any video that I did in my first year, I cringe at so badly. Um, I, I find them impossible to watch now because the audio is bad or I hadn't quite figured out how to articulate my thoughts. Uh, I also talked too painfully slowly. So like with writing, it's got a, there's a bit of a learning curve to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to looking back on this interview a year from now and just being like, oh, I'm such a dumbass. Like, I can't believe this. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, it, I, I can totally understand that our our own kind of podcast ended up starting with the two of us, me, me looking to my friends being like, hey, you want to start a podcast? And then basically going from there with rudimentary knowledge of how to edit audio and video and then just kind of starting. But there's, no, yeah. there's something kind of bold to it, right? There's some kind of excitement to starting something that's entirely yours. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. And the truth is nobody is a, is, is awesome at this stuff when they first start. And you know, the rest of us, there's a learning curve and eventually you will look back and you'll forget how much you learned until you revisit that old stuff. And you're like, Oh God, 
how did, <laughs> why was anybody following me? This is terrible. So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that we get to talk to people like you and uh, James L. Sutter and stuff like that is just a, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge deal for us that you you're even sitting down with us at all. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge honor, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. So here, here's the question that goes back to craft. Um, so we're just talking about like that first uh, you know, dead novel that you resurrected as a brand new novel with a new idea. Um, thinking about your series on RPG philosophy, are there any pieces of advice from there that you would apply to um, writing itself? To writing the, the, there's there's a few things that I do that that do go over. Um, one of them does uh, uh, kind of coincidentally hit on on world building, and that is the the kill your darlings or don't show your homework. Uh, a lot of of authors, especially when it comes to fantasy, will get so into the world that they've built that the story ends up going on hold. So they can show off the world that they built. And while that might be the most fascinating thing in the world to the author, it is, it is really boring fiction. And um, so when I've talked about that on an RPG philosophy video, um, that was a lesson that uh, I had really learned through writing is you, want, you need to know what's there as the author. That way you can uh, draw from all that and you, can, you know how everything fits together and you know that it does. But at the same time, you don't need to just blast your audience with it to the point that it's becoming a, a, a lecture on some fake history or something like that, because that's where the, the backdrop starts taking more precedent over the heroes and the story. And that's, that's where the mistake happens. Yeah, I've, I've always found that when it comes to genre fiction specifically, uh, regardless of what we're looking at, what we're talking about, so many authors tend to waste pages or, or actually it's not even a waste in most cases. In some cases it might be, but what I'm talking about is more when you're in the real world, we already have all this symbolism that we have and hold meaning for. And then when you're into speculative fiction or when you're into fantasy or what have you, you have to spend the time to tell them, okay, well, this means this. You don't know about the history. You didn't have, you didn't take the 12 years or however many years of education to know and understand what we're talking about here. So let me try and cram it into as much as possible. How do you, how do you try and combat that in your own fiction? I mean, how do you kill your own darlings? Well, there's, there's a a couple ways and a lot of it's through how you approach it. And I think that's the biggest one is um, in, in writing one of the best tools you can do is the, um, uh, the new guy trope where you are explaining to the audience through a character who is the new guy. Um, Harry Potter, for example, was being introduced to the wizarding world. So as people told Harry what in the hell all this stuff was and what's going on, that was in a way telling the audience. And it seemed natural as that's how that they would do that. Um, that's a lot harder to do if you're doing a story where everyone in the, in the story is familiar with the world and its history and rules. And now the author has to, you know, kind of explain that to the audience, but the, the, the useful idiot or the new guy tropes are, are super handy to get that information through. Uh, the other one is, isn't necessarily as killing as much, but spreading it out. Um, the, the, the big bad part comes when the, the author kind of just says, 
okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just dump all the information right here in one spot. And after about the second paragraph, your reader's eyes start glazing over because they're like, I want to get back to the story. I don't need a history lesson on this made up town. So you have to figure out how to weave in all of that key information naturally um, without doing, um, as you know, Bob's, which I I guess you're familiar with the trope, you know, as you know, Bob, I'll tell you something that, you know, is my way to tell the audience. Um, So you want to kind of throw in these little tidbits about the history of the world or the rules in, in a way that is, is bite-sized. Like, you know, by the time the reader just realized you, you did a little bit of exposition, it's already over. (laughs) Maybe they didn't even notice it, but you have to kind of get it through smoothly versus, uh, almost stopping and pulling out a chart and saying, okay, hold on. Now we're going to tell you the wor- the rules of the world. That's boring in both gaming and writing. Couldn't agree more. Part of me wishes for, and I'm sure that the, this exists already, but part of me really wants there to be some kind of bold author who just throws in a whole bunch of symbolism and it, and like in like essentially in media res and you just like, you're not going to have any context for it. You just kind of have to go by the context clues, almost like a dark souls kind of way. Like you just kind of have to piece together the lore surrounding everything. Obviously that'd be too confusing for a lot of things, but I feel like a skilled writer could kind of get that through. I, um, I haven't read this, but that actually sounds like a description people have told me for, uh, the Malazan series. Is it, he pretty much does that just throws you into the middle of it. And it's like, don't worry, you'll, you'll figure it out. But it doesn't stop at first and just kind of explain it. It's just kind of goes, which a lot of people have said is very off-putting. And then a lot more people say, look, if you give it, give it enough time, it's brilliant, but it is evidently very jarring because that's how they approach it. Yeah. I've, I've heard very similar things about Malazan, except when you say give it enough time, I often hear that as give it the first three books, (laughs) which is kind of a time commitment for a lot of people. It's a a common thing in in sci-fi to do that, to kind of toss you into a world and not really refuse to explain anything, kind of let you acclimate. And it's true. Like if you can pull it off over maybe like a chapter, you can get away with it, but then it's like, I want to read three books. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, one of the, you know, allow me to steer this conversation a new way. But um, one of the, one of the areas that I do have a bit of a, a rant on is with a lot of streaming TV shows now, where it how takes, everything is a breadcrumb at the end. Yeah, or, or actually, takes, no, I'm sorry. Let me three episodes to tell you what the hell is going on, and you're sitting there thinking it's like I'm three hours in and I don't even know what in the hell is going on or who these people are. That's a, that's an entire Lord of the Rings movie, or that's that's one and a half Star Wars films. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> you know, if it takes you three hours to hook me, then you're failing. Um, so yeah, I, I, you for me, you've got one episode, and uh, after that, it just requires you've either hooked me or enough of my friends have absolutely convinced me to to charge onward. But um, with with storytelling. You want to be able to hook them immediately, and then you can explain what the plot is, but you need to be able to get that hook in. Uh, it's like buying time. Yeah. So so speaking of uh, hooks and, and storytelling, I think that you can transition that kind of storytelling to role-playing for sure. Like, what are, what are some of the best ways for you to convey world-building through role-play and also get people interested in the plot? I mean, I know that you have videos on hooks and everything like that, but what do you, what do you think? 
One of the the best ones is so I talked about you know the the author the, the author the game master needs to know or should know the all the world behind the scenes even though they don't have to show it all at the same time or maybe not show all of it ever is give the illusion that you do even if you don't mm-hmm. uh, so there there is a kind of an art to show to making it look like there is a much larger world going on. Even if all you know is the little dinky town they're in and maybe about what's around it for one mile in every direction, if you can make it look like you know what's going on out there in the wider world, and then you can stick to being consistent to it. Um, that's the other big key. You, you know, Whenever you improvise something, saying like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is how the politics are there. You need to remember that. That way, when it comes up again later, they're like, I remember when I heard that before. He's... He's genius. He has so many notes on this, and you're quickly jotting down the answer. But you need to give the illusion that there is a, a scope there. Um, but as far as hooks, any hook will do as far as just get a motivation. Uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one I, I usually use for the example here. You know, in the very beginning, it hooks you right away. You don't really even know who who in the hell Indiana Jones is, but he's he's menacing and you know, he's got this whip and it's cool. And uh, and then later on, they introduced the concept of now we're going to chase the Ark and try to defeat the Nazis. But you already you already love the character up front. And that's that's enough to keep you going until we then get to the bigger hook and the bigger hook. And then we're, we're off on the story and on the adventure. What I love about that Indiana Jones example in particular is not only do you get his strengths, you know, he's an adventurer, but he's and, and you know, he's cunning and he's fast and kind of a badass but you also get a greater sense of his weaknesses and kind of you know like you you the snakes thing gets brought up almost immediately and i think that to get the quirk to go along with he's not just a badass he's also a human you know like i think that's probably one of the more brilliant parts of cinema is when you get it's such a distilled moment of the character which is a stark contrast to the third film where it's a matter of oh well we see the origin all of them in within a five minute period from the hat to the whip to the snakes it's it feels kind of hokey compared oh, it to does him. well you know with, with indiana jones he is he's to me one of the the perfect fictional heroes because he is uh he's not he's not perfect uh he jumps across the chasm and he can't make it so he, he grabs onto the vine he kind of gives this kind of sigh and then it starts pulling off so he, there's a lot of clumsiness to him um you know, he's obviously very smart. That is, that's his biggest attribute, but he's, he's kind of clumsy. He's got some phobias. Um, he's kind of a jerk and he's not absolutely flawless. And one of the mistakes that, um, a lot of authors will make is they will make their characters too, too perfect. And what makes Indiana Jones great is the fact that, that he is flawed, but you still love him. And and you find enjoyment in those flaws, so I think I think he's I think that's also just a perfect movie, just absolutely flawless, perfect. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Right up there with like the Mummy with Brendan Fraser. Oh my God, I love that movie so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank much. you. I I saw that movie in theaters three or four times, and yeah. I have owned oh. it on every format that it's come out on. <laughs> just uh, good attention. 
It's it's so good. I saw it in a drive-in in a double feature wow. the first time I ever saw it, and it was st- it's still amazing. I mean, the CG obviously doesn't hold up, but that sense of adventure that's like the last great adventure movie to come out in in a very very long time. No, I'm not talking about action because every you know there's so many good action movies. Adventure where there's like a sense of yeah. you know Characters like together. exploration yeah. and you're you're kind of and wonder is another important thing as well. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and- it's uh, we could fanboy over this movie for the next. Hour, <laughs> Honestly, we got time. I, 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 look, I can I can I can switch formats of this podcast whenever I want. I, like, I will I gladly talk about this movie. Love it, but but Brendan Fraser has a lot of those same aspects. He's he's kind of clumsy. He's kind of goofy. He's he's kind of clueless. Um, Benny is just solid gold. Uh, oh. but, uh, he owns the camera every time he's on it. Uh, which is Scene stealer every time just just flawless uh everything on the casting of that movie was was perfect like yeah sorry i i can fanboy over the night no, I, no I, i'm i'm so glad that i have someone to to fanboy with because man that mo- the the first one in particular is it, it drops off in quality as they go obviously it's but man that movie is still amazing. amazing the second one's fine the second one's totally fine the, um, you just no it's not that. No. Wow. Blum 2 wow. is the greatest Great. cinematic disappointment I have ever experienced. <laughs> I, I, I went to go see that That's in theaters because I loved the first one so much. It came out uh-huh. and I went to see it. And I felt so betrayed and so let <laughs> down. I've never forgiven it. That's like me when I went and saw V for Vendetta in the theaters. And for the, like, I drove home the maddest I have ever been. Just like screaming and blowing red lights. And no, like, there's, there's no rage like fanboy rage. Right? <laughs> Especially when there's disappointment. I think that's really where fanboy rage stems from is, is disappointment. It's like, I love this thing so much and you heard it. You know, like, it's kind of like a father to, that's, that's a bit much, obviously. Wow. But wow. It's, yeah. Wow, it's yeah. Crazy. I know. I know. Melodramatic here. It's okay. Speaking of melodrama, like I had a question for you involving your Ed Floor video, which is like my favorite video, hands down. <laughs> um, so, because we were talking about like characters like Indiana Jones and what makes a good tropey kind of like hero. When you think of like tropes out there, what are, what would you do in role playing with the tropes that you're handling? Um, what spin do you put on your tropes um, in writing to make them more interesting? Like, what, what's your technique there? Uh, tropes to use for writing um well since kind of like in role playing you tend to you know turn to tropes to get a point across quickly and writing are there ways that you can use kind of those skills for role playing to spin a trope just like we did with Indiana Jones well with with role play there's a lot of people that try to I, I guess hide from tropes in a role playing game and I'm more inclined to run toward them uh <laughs> I think part of the reason that we, we do these games is so we can, you know, have these tropes. Um, so uh, while in writing, it's like, well, you want to avoid it. Or you want to always put like a, a very big spin on it or a new take with role playing. I'm like, nah, just, just run right at that thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, don't, don't give me a com- a carbon copy of, of an existing character, but you can rip off all the tropes you want, you know, knock yourself out. Uh, just because I think that is part of the appeal of the games. So um, with, with gaming though, I still, it's kind of this, what I just said with Indiana Jones. Like I love, I love some good flaws. 
uh, I never want them debilitating. I've got one player. We've we've been playing together 21 years this month now, and he wow. is uh, what I call a flaws addict. And it is amazing <laughs> what sort of flaw he will give his character. And the whole time I'm like, how did you think this would be playable? What's uh, and it's it's just it's just incredible how much he will come up. He'll really go out of his way to come up with an elaborate flaw. And I'm usually just sitting there going, you took a perfectly good character and you, <laughs> what did you do to this thing? Um, yeah. He's, he's made it work a few good times and when it's worked, it's spectacular, but the hit to miss ratio is pretty, uh, pretty severe. Uh, so it is, you know, he's, he's made a hit like three times in 21 years and there's been a lot of misses. <laughs> I was going to say, sometimes the character who adds like a little bit of chaos, like really, really helps kind of change the story and, and adds a little bit like it's the spice, right? Like where everyone's playing, you know, like, oh, I got the bread, which is the fighter. I got the meat, which is the cleric. And, you know, and then all of a sudden somebody somebody comes in. It's like, oh, I'm the cayenne pepper. I'm this guy. But I think what you might be describing is a little bit different. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm the toothpaste. Like on the sandwich. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's it. The toothpaste is what we will call that. I, uh, <laughs> I so I really I, I could never do a video on this because it's very difficult to get the the point across outside of a conversational setting. Um, I love the chaos factor of of, of a player um, when you when you play with certain people a very long time and they're very seasoned. They. Uh, they have a tendency to very carefully think through everything they do, and it's just about impossible to get them. Uh, so I also love having that one player that's just, I don't know, just a little impatient or just a little crazy. And so when they're in the room and they know the door is trapped or they can't figure out the other way out, that one player, it's like, damn it, I'm just going to open the door. And yeah, it's like, oh, thank yeah. you. You've you've now made this game fun because oh. these these super slow, painfully slow, meticulous players are not letting the boulder chase them. Uh, yes, so, thank you. <laughs> so sometimes yeah. I do want that, and it's a player I'll usually gripe about ninety percent of the time. But ten percent, it's just like, thank you, thank <laughs> you for being my chaos. I needed that so bad. So I I do love to have it because it can really make the game a lot more fun when you just have that one player that either really jumps on a bad idea or just acts without thinking every once in a while. I would agree completely. Uh, he is my chaos player. oftentimes. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> but I also believe that sometimes you have not killed me just because it's just like, we spent 20 minutes at that door. It wasn't trapped. There was wow. just someone on the other side waiting for you to come in. Just, <laughs> Open the damn door. <laughs> a perfect example of that, actually. I, I gave them, it was it was a level one game, and I told them, like, hey, we're going to have an intro session where it's level one, and then we're going to skip to 15th level because you guys have never played an epic game, and I wanted to do that. And so I uh, presented them game one, session one, with you have several tons of gold and magic items that you have to move from this location in the jungle back home. What do you do? And I swear to you, most of them were like, it's a trap. I don't know how it's a trap, but it's a trap. I'm not touching it. And like, we're going to drown in gold. No, the fun part is getting the gold back. That was the whole point of the adventure. Exactly. And it's like, I I can't just do it. Come on, just just pull the gold out, please. They were terrified. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's part of the problem when you're playing with with some some seasoned players. They don't they don't trust anything. Yeah, poke it with a stick. Don't trust that person. Guess what? I want to know whether they're lying every time they speak. Oh god, yeah, we did that too. I remember. Yeah, how do you how do you normally like get get out of that rhythm? How do you normally break people of you know that kind of analysis paralysis or like you know if you're seasoned like cause panic, cause decisions to happen? What's your go to for that? Well, I've I've had a few that I've used. with uh, with my channel, I'm really known for doing a lot of scenario like module reviews, mm-hmm. and so I guess people kind of falsely assume that most of my games are are modules because I've got a lot of them, which is also accumulated off almost thirty years now. But uh, when when I started playing with uh, my current group, which is the two of them, we just had our twenty first anniversary. Uh, those first. 14 years or so, I never used a module. So they learned how to read me. You know, even if they didn't, <laughs> yeah. know, they knew when this is like, this is what Seth would do here. Um, they would, they would know how to beat my little tricks or they would know when I'm setting them up for something. And then I'd pull out a module, which was written by somebody else. And man, <laughs> that screwed with them because, <laughs> Because it's not necessarily the way I would have done it, but I'd, I'd, I was going to follow the module, and that's when all of a sudden they could trust nothing. Their instincts were wrong. Uh, the other one is mm-hmm. we do a lot of theme games, or we'll do a change of systems altogether to to really shake things up. Uh, I can never stress how valuable that was for us when we, we started playing Call of uh, Cyberpunk was our first big change. And the dynamic of everybody, you know, you've got that one player who always plays this one way when you throw them in a a completely different setting and a completely different game mechanic. um, It's kind of like shuffling the deck. You know, they, they might come up the same, but sometimes they just, it's totally different and they play differently. And, and I am playing differently as the game master. So that's, that was a wonderful way to, I guess, kind of shake off a lot of, bad or tired habits from uh, from both sides of the screen. Seth, I have to say that your segue into our world building jam session where we randomize everything couldn't have been any more perfect than that. It's kind of like a reshuffling of our own ideas. And um, we're going to get right into that unless you have something else you want to talk about real quick. No, let's do it. Cool. Sweet. All right. So the way that this works is we're going to roll uh, three things. There's the genre, the subject and the theme. The genre can be science fiction, fantasy, horror, modern day, romance, or we can roll twice and combine two. Then there's the subject, which is an item, a monster, a place, a historical figure, an event, or again, roll twice and combine two. And then we stick with a theme, which is madness, sacrifice, love, metamorphosis, pride and honor, the unspeakable, (laughs) triumph and hope. Then once we've got that down, we throw in a twist and there's currently 20 of those and I'm not going to read them all out loud and we are just going to dive right into that. Okay. Go for it. Oh yeah. I did so. All right. So this is going to be for the genre. Uh, We have horror. How appropriate. All things considered. These dice Uh, are stacked. I I, (laughs) look, I have witnesses. I promise. Yeah. I was going to tell you to lie and put three, but that worked out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
this is why we don't do video. Um, <laughs> next, we got the subject. It's behind the screen. It's fine. Uh, we've got uh, a historical figure. All right. And now we go for our theme. Where is my D8? There we go. All right. And the theme is madness okay well, all right come on no, no it's like faded all right all right um, what is abraham lincoln vampire hunter <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> i saw that movie and i liked it and i'm not ashamed that's fine Daniel, no as someone who hates pacific rim i want to reach over and slap <laughs> you so bad right now all right seth uh we've got a horror genre with a historical figure whose theme is surrounded in madness. Why don't you go ahead and get us started, unless you want to stick with uh, Abe Lincoln Vampire Hunter. No, no. I'm cool with that, too. I've never seen or or read it, but, man, a historical figure. Well, let's see. Um, So so just to clarify here, a historical figure in a setting of our own making. So it can just be an important person, not necessarily George Washington fighting the Loch Ness yeah, Monster. It could be fantasy Nero or anything. Well, hor- we're looking for horror here. That is yeah. horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and thousands of people died. <laughs> the, well, the difference between horror and fantasy is the lighting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is. So I, I guess we should figure out who our historical figure is first, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. what, what, ge- what, what, ge- what direction did you want to go in? Man, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I kind of want to go further out, but I at least want to have somebody that I know something about. Somebody I can picture in a horror situation. Like Teddy Roosevelt, I always gravitate to, but I can never picture that man being afraid. Oh, so. I, I, yeah, I, I actually have a Teddy Roosevelt shirt, and I, I can agree that that I mean, face is not afraid of anything. Afraid. Oh, is is that where we want to go? Do you want to go with like? I think you should do it. What makes Teddy scared? Is that is that that the direction that we want to go in? Yeah, eighteen hundreds Delta Green. (laughs) The rough, yeah, the Rough Riders were the original Delta Green. Of course, it makes total sense. Ooh, ooh, that's a good one. What 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 did they find when they went to Cuba? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What what? Okay, what did or more importantly, what did Spain bring over? To to uh, to help kind of keep the colonists down or the colonies down. Oh, damn! This thing is writing itself. This is awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> Death took him in his sleep because he couldn't take him awake. <laughs> uh, now, now we could go real silly and real cheesy and just go with like some kind of a bull moose demon, but I, oh I'd prefer God. not to oh, no. if we could help it. Um, well, what, if you, if you, if you go through the concept of, of Spain brought something, um, to keep the colonists in line, um, and then Teddy Roosevelt had to, had to face against that. Um, the, the next thing is, is it a, a monster or an item of power? Hmm. And oh, remember that we have the theme of madness as well. We want to keep that in mind. I like item of power because it, it usually depends on the wielder of the thing, you know, how it causes this problem. Yeah, as, as someone who's been playing through Blasphemous and, you know, <laughs> digging all of the weird arcane Catholic mythology, I'm, I'm totally down with an item of power as well. Okay. Um, I think it should be something that attacks you in your sleep because of Teddy. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So R.I.P. a real one, Teddy Roosevelt. Absolutely. 
So something, mm-hmm. something of shadow, something of night, something that gets you while you sleep. What if it's something that takes both forms? It, it is an item that becomes a monster. Almost like a mimic or a sentient item yeah, of some kind? You want to handle it as something that gets you in your sleep. Hmm. I'm so glad we have post-production to edit all this part out. But still, <laughs> um... yeah, just spitballing uh, ideas is fun. I love this part. I, yeah. I know this is this this I, I we've this is our third time doing it, and well, it's is, it's fun every single time. What it's like fear? Uh, the only thing I can think fear of itself. That, oh no, that's no, no, FDR. no. Sorry, FDR. Teddy fearing reverting to back to what he was before he forced himself to oh, like work out to perfection. Yeah, like a nobody. Yeah. No, no. When he had asthma before he spent yeah, time yeah. in Montana, all of that being stripped, all his work being undone. Work with that. So, what yeah. did the Spaniards have that would be similar that would invoke that kind of fear? Okay, uh, I would. I, I'm, then, so, his biggest fear is is reverting back to the the the, the little weakling. He was God. Teddy Roosevelt was a badass. Yeah, <laughs> 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 this, this this kind of small, mustacheless, um, asthmatic kid. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess kind of showing him his, his madness was the realization that no matter how hard he tries, he is still that, you know, weak uh, person that he spent his life trying to run from. So Teddy Roosevelt's madness is caused, let's say by his being basically followed, you know, like it follows, but it's a very small, young, asthmatic Teddy Roosevelt. It's, <laughs> it's 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 got to be an it's if we're doing an, an item it's yeah. going to be a mirror then right yeah, so, so it's an actual be. dark reflection of all of his fears or is that a little bit too tropey well, or are we running towards the trope well if it's like the it follows thing maybe it came out of the mirror and now it's like a doppelganger of teddy that's his child version of I, I don't want it to I be think exactly that's like it follows because that that's disturbing to picture in my mind <laughs> oh god um, yeah what what about a the the, the mirror let's say is in a pool of a fluid, like a, a goblet yeah, or a go. bowl and the form that it takes kind of following that water theme is kind of a mist that, that moves along the ground and comes out of the water. And that's where little Timmy asthmatic Roosevelt comes out of is this kind of a misty form in the night. Oh, that's, that's really great. Now, as it was coming from Spain, and I think we were leaning a little bit on to it being of uh, Christian of origin. Sure. Uh, I was picturing maybe part of it is corrupted humility. Oh. Because uh, it is making him into his uh, weaker self as he was young and he is an incredibly proud person every right every right to be and and if we're doing and if we're doing like kind of a mist why not have it be like a holy censor that's been corrupted or something like that so you just got to that stage with the big one in the background okay we're gonna go ahead and switch (laughs) over to the throw in a twist i feel like we've got a solid concept so i feel like we're gonna switch over all right let's see what we got all right so Uh, so now we have to kill or revive a major character. We can't kill Teddy. We just can't die. No, no, no. You have Teddy beat his asthmatic self no. to death. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, the, it's the opposite. It's it's the opposite. Weak Teddy Boy. actually. Weak, <laughs> weak Teddy actually kills Teddy Roosevelt. And no, from then on, we have a dark doppelganger. Oh, the evil evil over. Teddy, oh, yeah, God. evil Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so like the yeah. end, evil Teddy Roosevelt peels off Teddy Roosevelt's face and turn, like puts it on and walks into the White or House. Just turns yeah. to the camera, his eyes glow. That's the horror component. That is the horror. Well, I mean, Teddy the- we knew and loved was a doppelganger. 
the whole oh. time. Yeah. Oh, and then and then you can go back and be like Teddy Roosevelt before this moment was actually just a horrible person. Yes. And oh, there's there's so much rich. Okay, all right, that's fun. Seth, what else do you? What, what other options do you have? What, what, besides, who else could we revive or kill that we can kind of throw in here with with Dark Teddy? Oh, okay. Well, did he run against Garfield? Not the um, See, when did when did he die versus Tesla? Oh, we have to bring Tesla. Yes, please let's do it if it's possible. I mean, if you're if Tesla, you, if I think you're ever going to science and weird, Tesla is like a gold mine. Oh yeah. Him and Edison oh my God. just fighting wizards and yeah, see, I'm trying to think what, what's great. Cause Wizard? yeah, I mean, no. Teddy Roosevelt, dark Teddy. I mean, he mostly what punched out moose and I mean, he got, he got <laughs> shot at one point. Somebody knew the truth and shot him and he still delivered a speech with his dark misty blood pouring out the whole time. Yeah. But, oh, um, oh yeah. So is that why Teddy got into politics and all because he was like corrupted and then decided to stick with it afterwards. Like, well, I'm already halfway here. Might as well. I, that's, that's as plausible of an explanation as I've ever heard. So and that's when the sh- shadow government was formed by Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, we're doing like a weird kind of. <laughs> it's yeah, happy guys. Yeah. Can't yeah. Teddy can't actually win, you know? So it makes sense. So, our, so basically we've got our, our, our Delta green organization was the shadow government, or I guess the resistance Completely designed yeah. to assassinate Dark Teddy. Yeah, and it turned it got turned against him because in the end, like, they end up serving the evil Dark Teddy. And you know what? I'm fine with that being headed by Nikolai Tesla. All right, you know, the, the, so Teddy died in 1919, and Tesla died in 1943, which means Tesla wins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Tesla. Point for Tesla. Give me the sequel. It's fine. Give me the sequel. Okay. Um, I want to see a made for sci-fi movie called the return of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. Now that follows this plot. Oh, just, man. just dark Teddy. Yeah. I mean, if you look, if you want another uh, puzzle box, there's your idea right there. <laughs> no, just pitch it to sci-fi. They'll do it. Yeah. yeah. It, it, vampire Hunter book. it did well. That's you know? true. Uh, don't, don't get me started. Okay. <laughs> All right, Seth. I'm, uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for the World Build Gym. Uh, that that was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I, <laughs> I'm gonna now. I'm gonna ask you some real quick questions, uh, as I do at the end of every interview. Uh, soup. My wife wants to know: Is cereal a soup? Yes. Wow, All right. That was definitive. What RPGs have you been playing recently? Uh, Traveler and Call of Cthulhu. Hey, there we go. And um, for uh, one, one more, uh, who would you like to plug? That's not you. Who would I like to plug? That's not me. Damn, I'm so busy thinking about myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I could have that one. Yeah, I mean, you can plug yourself. Yeah. Oh no, um, that comes later. No, right. Yeah, yeah, it comes later. Actually, who I'd love to plug is uh, it is another author friend of mine who has been I've been trying to talk into doing a YouTube channel for some time. His name is Clay Sanger, and uh, Clay is a fantastic author who does very occulty gangland fiction. Um, his his novel that's out is just a piece of brilliance. It's like uh, Sons of Anarchy meets Constantine. So Clay Sanger, remarkably talented. 
and doesn't believe in himself enough. So I would like to plug him because he is really good and doesn't know it. And what's the, what's the name of that book that he just came out with? The it is called Innsville. Ensville. All right. Uh, gentlemen, do you have any other questions? Quick questions for Seth Skorkowski before we move on. Sure. What was your favorite character's name that you played in all of RPG history? Oh, that's a good one. My favorite character from any RPG, his name was Carl Preston Smith. And he was from a uh-huh. cyberpunk game. And he was ridiculously narcissistic. And he would do a lot of disguises all the time. Uh, that oh, And all of his disguises had the initial CPS, like his. Um, and he was very much modeled after Christian Bale in American Psycho. Oh, nice. oh that's perfect. That. Okay. Uh, and he I quoted Terry Roosevelt all the time, oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's a weird coincidence. Um, <laughs> I've only done that yeah. once, and it was him. So uh, when learning another system, you typically said that you would fight with a, well, create a character and fight another person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We do uh, uh, combat practice. Who would win more often than not? And did you keep a score? Um, <laughs> Follow up. Did you keep a score? Okay. So yeah, my, my buddy, <laughs> Jesse, who's the one that I played with forever, that is sometimes kind of the wild card and just loves um, debil- crippling his characters. Have you just been beating up asthmatics for 20, <laughs> 21 no. years? Yeah, well, during fight practice, we're we're both competent characters. That man thinks so sideways that it is impossible to gauge what he is ever going to do. So (laughs) whenever we do fight practice, if the system has like a really good melee combat system and like normally would be like a, a gun system, he will always, always win because he will pull out some obscure rule over... Uh, breaking holds, disarming, you know, choking me out. And and I'm busy just trying to figure out how to punch him. So yeah, he, he usually wins during the melee portion and I dominate him during the, the ranged portion. Excellent. Mm, that's great. All right. Seth Skorkowski, thank you so much for joining us on World Build With Us. Uh, you have the last two minutes to go ahead and plug away at all your pluggables. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm suddenly caught off guard. My pluggables? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got a new book that just came out. I mean, I, come on. What else you got going on? Well, um, what else have I got going on? I am doing Total Con later this month, which will be up in Massachusetts. I'm a guest of honor there. Um, and I will be actually We're Boston based. Yeah, Canada. that's awesome. Um, and then later this year, I will be at uh, Gen Con. I'm coming with a writer symposium. So I'm, I'm coming on the writer side of things again. And then Spa Con, I just confirmed that one. That'll be in Arkansas. Sooner Con in Oklahoma. Uh, those will be, I guess, my, my big kind of appearances throughout the year. And as far as, I guess, my own my own books, I have my Valdican series, which is a four-part or four separate novels of uh, urban fantasy monster hunting. Um, my wow. Black Raven series, which are all pulpy sword and sorcery short stories. And then, of course, Ashes of Onyx, which is my my new baby. Um, very, very broken hero in that one. I love her. Very excited to read that one. All right, Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, yeah, we'll see you at TotalCon, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm glad. Thank you. And that'll do it for that episode with Seth Gorkowski. I cannot tell you 
how excited I am to have someone who's so on board with their love of the mummy like I am. <laughs> uh, honestly, that was probably one of my favorite things uh, besides... Well, no, it was my favorite thing. It was being able bonding. to talk. Yeah, yes. bonding over the mummy and Brendan Fraser. The, or Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. Oh, is that your favorite part, Daniel? I think so. I think the world-building jam we did that resulted in a Teddy Roosevelt-driven yeah. You know, yeah, story. Te- and his Ted- evil alter ego. Yeah, evil Teddy Roosevelt and I, everything. I still can't get... It follows Teddy Roosevelt out of my head. <laughs> let it, let it and consume it will, you. It will haunt me in my dreams. Is it, <laughs> I mean, Just like be, the movie, yes. Hold on. To be fair, to be fair, Teddy Roosevelt's pretty fuckable on the list of, of, the list of American presidents. We said <laughs> it was his head. emaciated, asthmatic child <gasps> self. Right, okay, version. no, but I'm talking about regular bull moose, wink. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, but they're He's... both doing it. Oh, no. <laughs> That's the worst part of it. Okay, yes, but I'm saying, like, the Teddy Roosevelt that I have on my T-shirt, Teddy Roosevelt, that Teddy Is Roosevelt. Is that the one riding a dinosaur? Yeah. No, oh, okay. no, what? it's the black and white portrait one that I have. Wait, you have oh. a different president riding a dinosaur? He's not riding a dinosaur at all. It's just his face. I just put him on a dinosaur, like, subconsciously. I don't yeah. know why. D- he yeah. deserves it, yeah. <laughs> no, but Teddy Roosevelt's awesome. Teddy Roosevelt's, again... Also, top 10 fuckable presidents. <laughs> for sure. Is Obama up there? Oh, yeah. Of course. Come on, yeah, look at his right. live little body. Van Buren? <laughs> no, look at those chops. The chops, yeah. That's fair, yeah. That's fair. Um, I'd, say, I'd say Teddy's up there for sure. Yeah. Obama's got to be up there. Yeah. 100%. Um, Not Nixon, I assume. Oh, God. Look at those jowls and tell me he's at all fuckable. <laughs> yeah. I just want you to make here. that noise. <laughs> How did you know I would make the noise? How did you make the noise? Uh, uh, I'd, I'd probably say Washington, despite his gross, decaying teeth. teeth. Yeah. And the slavery. That's yeah, definitely. That, that's you know, a yeah, you just fell out of top 10. Oh, yeah, all the slavery ones are problems. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Oh, JFK. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, he's like yeah. a dreamboat. Yeah, okay. that's true. That's true. JFK is definitely up there. Uh, LBJ. No, just because he has a big dick. Whoa, like, whoa, whoa, on. whoa, whoa, whoa. He called it, he called it Jumbo or Dumbo he or whatever. Did. Yeah, yeah, he would no, whip it he, out on people. He would purposely oh, show people God. his dick, I believe. Okay, oh, hold on. God. Oh, yeah, as an intimidation tactic. He was terrible. Jesus. Although, if it's Clancy Brown as depicted in The Crown, then we can talk about it. But it's not. It's not Clancy Brown. I this, love Clancy th- this Brown. This was about world building, not yeah, <laughs> yeah. But also, but also presidents. Chris, what was your favorite part of our interview with Seth Skorkowski? Um, I just like talking about horror movies and uh, how they influence you and how you grew up with them. Yeah, yeah, that was that was fun as well. And yeah, I, I like picking his brain about Hellraiser and everything because, like, it's not my favorite movie, but it is the one that I hold closest to my heart. Yeah, I, I, I kind of feel that way about certain horror, horror movies as well. Like, there are certain movies that, like, I know this is very clearly not the best horror movie or the best movie I've ever seen, but it's, like, like The Mummy, it's it just has a special place in my heart. Of he also like, mentioned man. The Thing that he mentioned? Yeah. yeah, the, yeah, thing, yeah. the Thing is yeah. undoubtedly uh-huh. one of the best horror yeah. movies of all time. It's Every, so fucking good. Yeah. Every time I'm delayed on the red line, though, I, I still think of Midnight Meat Train. Yeah. Clive Barker. Midnight yeah. Meat Train? Yeah. Oh, watch it. Next no, time you're stuck on the red this. line, just watch it. Not a great, not <laughs> a great movie, better. though. No, not a great movie. Not a great oh, movie at okay, all. yeah. Listen to a reading of it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think that'll about wrap it up. Uh, if you want to go ahead and send us your top 10 list of fuckable presidents, go ahead and email <laughs> us at worldbuildwithus at gmail.com. Doesn't or, have to be American. Oh, yeah. That's no. True. Uh, 
Open it up. Yeah, I mean, MPs, prime ministers, like if you got like a series of kings or yeah. whatever, p- please, I mean, send us your list by all means. If you don't want to email us, you can always send us a DM at world at Let's World Build on Twitter and follow us there for all sorts of fun nonsense and whatnot. And until next time, I mean, I'm just going to say it. We love you very much and uh, have a good week.